Hey, what's up, everybody? Logan Chartrand back again with another episode of Hotshot Archery's Outdoor Podcast. We've got a great episode for you this week. We're trucking right along with the conversations that we had at the Archery Trade Association show in Indy back in early January. This week, we are sitting down with Derek Craig of Magnus Broadheads. You might remember we talked to Derek's daughter, Sydney, and Trevor back in December and had an episode about what it's been like for them growing up hunting. This time we had an opportunity to sit down with Derek, myself, Andrew, and Robin all got together to talk about all things Magnus Broadheads, to dive into a little bit about what Derek does and some of his personal life. So we're going to bring that to you this week. Hopefully you enjoy it. As always, thank you so much for your support. Continue to subscribe to the podcast. If you have questions, if you have comments, if you have show ideas, please make sure that you email us, podcast at hotshotmanufacturing.com. We love hearing from you. Again, as always, thank you all so much, and we hope you enjoy this episode. The show starts in three, two, one. All right. Well, I guess we should probably uh, kick this off with some introductions. I think people from week to week are probably going to get really tired about why Why are the introductions always in the exact same order. So we're going to go um, counterclockwise here for introductions. The man of however long we've got you here during the ATA show. Derek, go ahead and introduce yourself, please. Uh, my name is Derek Craig, and I'm here at the ATA with uh, Magnus Broadheads. I also own New Day Outdoors and live here in Indiana. I'm Big turkey and deer hunter. I think all three of us um, sitting around this table, all four of us now, um, all use Magnus heads. So we're really excited to have you here today. Appreciate you being able to step away from the booth just to even sit down and have this conversation with us. So thank you so much for that. Um, next up, we've got um, the next man of however long we're sitting down with Derek today. It's uh, Robin Parks. The Typical co-host behind Logan. Fantastic. And last but certainly not least. Got Andrew Metz, uh, the magic man behind the uh, technology. Yes, the guy who's responsible for getting everything set up for us. Um, we've got some stuff coming up new. We've got a new logo that Andrew's been working on for us that we're going to uh, be releasing for the podcast soon. So excited to be able to bring that to everybody here. Um, Derek, I want to start off with, I want to go deep into, I've got lots of just personal questions for you, but um, want to start off talking about Magnus. What can you share with um, us around the table here? Those who are listening in, what do we need to know about Magnus Broadheads? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, Magnus uh, is uh, from Great Bends, Kansas. So Magnus Broadheads is founded and still owned solely by a gentleman by the name of Mike Som. Um, Unfortunately, Mike, could not be here today. We've got to have somebody manning the booth, taking yeah, all the orders. He's, so. he's taking some orders. He's got some big buyers, and he'll be the first to tell you that he's not very comfortable in front of a camera or behind a microphone. I've um, heard the same about you. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's probably one of the most humble people that you you'll meet, and so it's just not his. Uh, you know, his thing to do. So he sends me out here to do this stuff. Um, <clears throat> Mike started Magnus 36 years ago this year. Uh, it started out of his mom and dad's bedroom at their house. And then he moved it into a small shed a couple of years later. And then 
a smaller like garage facility and then i don't it was uh, i don't remember the exact date but somewhere in the early 90s into the production facilities that he's at now he's expanded a couple times so you know one of one of our uh things that we pride ourselves in and and mike takes great pride in this is that every magnus broadhead uh is made 100 percent in the usa with usa labor and materials we don't have our Blades or ferrules made over in China and then shipped over, and then we assemble them. Um, we make it all here, it, right down to the screws that hold everything together. And it's it's hard to actually find people who want to make screws right here in the United States. Sure. A lot of the stuff's overseas, especially so, to make it at a relatively affordable price. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's you know that's obviously the first claim, and then the other claim that we have is uh, we have what we feel is the best lifetime, no questions asked warranty in the business. So a broadhead is somewhat of a consumable product. Obviously, you're going to shoot it through a deer. Occasionally, you're going to damage a head. Maybe you shoot, miss, or you drive it into a rock after it's blown through a deer. And so that broadhead's going to be damaged. Well, in theory, it's a consumable, but we don't view it that way. So when you shoot our heads through a deer, it buries in the ground, hits a rock, and let's say you bend a, a blade. All we tell you is that you need to take out your cell phone, take a picture of it, email it to customer support at magnusbroadheads.com with your information. And then we'll send you a replacement broadhead free of charge. You don't have to pay for shipping. You don't have to keep some receipt from wherever you bought it. I mean, heck, Robin could sell you one of his personal heads and we'd still warranty it, Logan, if it was yours. Just the same. So that's kind of what we feel, uh, you know, separates us from a lot of other manufacturers, that and customer service. So obviously we are focused on the cut on contact fixed blade side of the market we don't have an expandable we don't have a chisel type point head we are all about cut on contact fixed blade uh you know quality uh to get the accurate flight one of the things that we do on every single head that we make and again i believe that we are the only one that does this is we screw every head into a jig and then we micro tune the tip with a with a micrometer to within three thousandths of an inch of the true center line of that broadhead, then that broadhead can't not spin <clears throat> perfectly because that tip is right there on the center line. So then if you throw that on an arrow that's got a squarely cut insert properly done, that arrow can't not spin great. Then you start looking at spine, assuming spine and bow tune is all in check. There's no way it can't not fly at that point in time. So that's where we feel that we differentiate ourselves. We don't spot check them. There, there are some that spot check. We check every single head. Can you talk about the, the how of that? I don't know if it's a trade secret, if that's protected. So I'm trying to picture, and I know what the heads look like, obviously, as a user. How, how are you truing that up? Is there... Are you taking material off, or how do nope. you make sure that that's getting... <clears throat> no. So the, the heads, the blades themselves are manufactured to very tight tolerance. So then at the... And so are the ferrules. So then at the assembly, there's very little flexibility on the assembly of the two, but there is a slight bit. So we can screw the ferrule into a jig that we already have. And at that point, we've got a proprietary micrometer setup, and we've got one individual. <clears throat> this is what she does. And she goes through every single head. And she makes sure that using that micrometer and that setup, again, it's all proprietary stuff that we've developed for ourselves. 
uh, make sure that that tip is true and everything spins. So it's it's rotating. She's checking it, rotating it. Is it good? Is it bad? Making micro adjustments, tighten everything down, and then it's out the door in the package. Nice. Uh, so how did you come to be? Because I obviously know you through Hot Shot and mm-hmm. then came to know you through the Magnus, but also we talked couple, I guess, last month back in December. Who knows? Hopefully we'll have this episode out sometime in um, January here. So we talked in December um, about your production company really focused around your two daughters. Uh, How did you come to be involved with a company out in Kansas when you live in northeastern Indiana? Well, so... (laughs) it's kind of funny. Um, Actually, I can go back to college days. And I remember being in a communications class and we had a guy come in. He's a big turkey hunter. This is 1987, 88, something like that. And he did a presentation on turkey hunting. And I was not even really, I wouldn't even call myself a hunter back in those days. And I remember him coming in with these crazy camo and I was like, that dude's nuts. I'm never doing that. Well, then, (laughs) so now I laugh about that because you know, I got out of college and then I started really deer hunting and stuff and, and that wasn't scratching the itch. So I discovered turkey hunting in the mid nineties. And so like most everybody was turkey hunting with a shotgun, you know, the traditional way. And it was so much fun and I loved it. And it almost became uh, an obsession or a drug for me at that point in time. So me then being also a bow hunter, I was like, well, certainly we can kill these with a bow. And you got to remember, this is like the late nineties, early two thousands. We didn't have access to the media outlets. we had, so hearing of somebody actually turkey hunting with a bow was like this, you know, it, it was, it was the white elephant. Like you're never going to see that. So I started body shooting birds and, you know, that's a frustrating process. Um, you know, there's some guys that do it very effectively and I have the utmost respect for them that get, if you can go out there and 10 for 10 body shooting birds, that's a great accomplishment and you're a heck of a, a shot. I was struggling with it. And so I remember it was like 2003 or four and the first head choppers came out by uh, the guillotines I did. And a bow shop gave them to me. We couldn't get them to fly. It struggled. So I went back to body shooting. Again, I'm losing birds and I was just getting frustrated. And so it was about 2008 or so when uh, Mike started launching the, the bullhead product. And I just happened to see it. I think it was archery talk or something back in the day. And so I got with Mike because again, great customer service. And he's like, here, I'll help you with the problems. And there was still a little bit of struggles because we didn't know then what we know now about the bullhead type of product and making a fly. So, um, I think it was 2009 or something like that. I, I killed my first bird with a bullhead and did it on video, sent it to Mike. Mike's like, dude, this is amazing. You know, can you do more of this? And back then guys, not everybody had a video camera like that in those days. And so, yeah, and so then he and I just struck up a friendship, and then that has just morphed, you know, over the last 11, 12-ish years that he and I have been communicating into our relationship that we have today. And I co-design products with him. I'm there for his technical support, for customer service. You know, if you're having flight issues, he bounces ideas off me. Sometimes he just sends people direct to me. We figure it out. And so that's, it's, it's developed into a great friendship, a great working professional relationship. Um, since those early days of the bullhead in 2008 and nine, we've just 
figured out this whole new uh, dynamic of what it takes to make them fly. So that's kind of a long-winded answer to how I got involved with Magnus. And obviously from there, it spins off into deer hunting type of products. You know, um, I helped uh, co-design the the Black Hornet when we developed that product. We had the Bow Prod bow pod product that was i co-designed that um we got other products you know sitting there in the in the cad files that may or may not someday become a product so that's where kind of my involvement evolved from and where it got to and it's i don't know it's not a scripted you know path but it's definitely one that just seems to evolve every year as the industry changes as you know the needs of the company change and and mike and trust you know i'm blessed He's a great guy and a great friend, and he entrusts me a lot with his company to do um, whatever I want video-wise, media-wise, testing-wise, coming up with ideas and says, just go with it. Be creative and figure this out and be there for the customers. And so that's kind of what I do in my involvement with it. Awesome. Before I know last person that we had a chance to sit down with, I hogged probably 40 of the 60 minutes that we were chatting. Um what questions do you I want to stay on Magnus here for a while before we get into some of your other work, but Robin, questions, thoughts, comments? Yeah, I was just kind of build a little bit on um, Derek's answer to your question is kind of you know, uh, circles back around and brings us back home to why you and I wanted to do this podcast to start with, and it all comes back to how... Um, really small the archery industry but not just the archery industry the outdoors community how small of a world that really is and how intertwined so many of us are and um you know the reason that i got involved with magnus um and i'm not formally involved with magnus uh you know i do a little bit for him and try to help him out but that's more because i got to know Derek and Mike both, and and that all evolved. Here we are sitting at the ATA show, and the ATA show was where the origins of actually meeting Mike, uh, um, and and Derek to an extent. Derek and I knew each other from online stuff, but meeting at the show and going out to dinner and learning about Magnus's Made in America, knowing about their lifetime warranty, and doesn't that sound familiar? That's like the hotshot model as well, right? And absolutely, and in getting to understand that Magnus and Magnus as a company was so similar to Hotshot, and the fact good people behind the company and those principles, and um, trying to stay with those principles of lifetime warranty and American made, and so you know, I haven't been locked in with a broadhead company in in quite a long time. So I played and experimented and shot whatever I feel like shooting and frankly still do. But, um, you know, the first thing for me to try was the bullheads. And so I started lopping some heads off, uh, for turkeys. And then I'm like, well, I mean, I might as well be shooting their broadheads. And so now I've been shooting the broadheads for the last three years. And I've got a pile of animals as proof of how good they are and how much I believe in them. And, um, you know, it's, such an amazingly good product that it is hard for me to understand how there's any negativity anywhere um anything negative said about them but there is and that's because people don't quite understand and you know Derek explained the process of the straightness of 
of their heads and how if your insert is straight and you're in square, it there's no reason anyone can't be shooting those fixed blades. And I also like to throw in a little bit about why I've stuck with Magnus as a head on the end of my arrow lately. Yeah, for sure. Is, you know, I played around with some big expandable heads for a few seasons and is really cool, you know, neat to see those big giant holes in those gears. But what I was figuring out was that's not us. It's definitely not us. <laughs> the room has been filling up yeah. as we've been sitting here but recording today. What I was figuring out was big holes is cool, but the deer aren't dying any quicker. And, you know, now, so let's talk about this year. I've shot three, well, four deer now, three mature bucks and a doe. And the furthest that any of them have went is 60 yards. Every single deer I've killed died in sight. And I haven't had to blood trail any of them, although the blood trails are, are phenomenal. And, um, you know, I've got a, a great big pile of dead hogs, which to me is pretty much the ultimate test for a broadhead and how it's going to perform. And if you can put hogs down quick and get... Uh, <laughs> As we are recording, uh, so one of the things that we'll get to is one of Derek's projects for this year. Um, every day he is posting a picture, but he also does something. It's not SNS, and your project isn't FSNS, and we're on the F today. So, but Derek does a project called SNS and sixty. Uh, so I definitely want to get to that. So he just broke out his little video camera here and was starting to shoot some stuff. <laughs> All of a sudden, Rob. So if you heard Robin's awkward pause there, it, yeah, it was because why. he's trying to figure out it's, why, it's, why is this guy it's trying to record a good me? time for an awkward pause because I was just kind of sorry. Sorry for that. No, I was just droning on and on about how good the broadheads are. But yeah, but essentially, in the last three years, and I've used their fixed blade heads for for animals. Um, you know, I've got a pile of results. And no negatives, and it's just a fantastic head. Yeah, well, and and you're seeing because you're shooting the black hornet Sarah rays right, with the four right, blade, and right. what you're seeing with that, and and your perfect testament to this is the way we design those serrations. Uh, it's a chisel serration, and then you look at the steeper blade angle, and anytime you take the chisel serration, whether it's a buzz cut or a black hornet, we're finding it opens up larger holes. But on the black hornet in particular, because of the steeper blade angle that larger hole is even exaggerated even more. So you're taking an inch and a quarter. It actually measures out of the package close to an inch and five sixteenths across the main blade. That's how much Derek is of an engineer. Yeah. So you all know that we're talking about one sixteenth <laughs> hey, of an inch. Hey, I'm telling you, well, us engineers, we like 64. I mean, so, um, but anyways, uh, we're seeing wounds in the hide open up to inch and three quarter, two and a quarter inches. And if we can get that hide opened up, in especially, say, a hog situation who's got a thicker fur, has got some fat, or you take a bear that's got fat and thicker fur, you want that hole as big as you can because you got to get as much blood on the ground because some of those, a bear, for example, that, that hair will act like a sponge. And, you know, the more blood we can get on the ground, A, hopefully it's a shorter tracking job, but B, hopefully it's an easier tracking job. It's frustrating when you're on your hands and knees looking for pin, you know, pin head size drops of blood. So... And I think Robin's a testament to that. I know he's shared a lot of photos and stuff that he's done. I've obviously, I've killed a lot and and we get customers sending in the photos. And sometimes I'm like, are you kidding me? We got that big of a wound. It's impressive. Yeah. The, that, that effect of the black hornet was most pronounced to me on, I think body shot four turkeys now with them. 
just birds that were staying a little bit further out there that I didn't want to shoot for the head with the bullhead. And I mean, I, it's laying them out. Like I'm hitting them in the wing butt and it is literally like dropping them on the spot. And when I walk up to the bird, I mean, there's blood all over the ground. Like, and that's not, you know, that's not common for body shooting birds. No. No. And to me, that's just that I'll call it a splash effect of, um, that's my term, not Magnus, by the way. But the splash effect of that We're black We're going to trademark hornet, that now, though. That's what I call it. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, I used, I, like Derek, started out turkey hunting and body shooting them. And, you know, my thing was always the biggest mechanic I possibly could find to body shoot them with. But, I mean, I've shown on those handful of shots that that black hornet is bad medicine on a turkey body. And you want to talk about a hard animal to track. I do not have access to where I'm hunting field edges somewhere where you can body shoot a bird and then watch it you start hunting inside the woods and get into body shooting turkeys i mean who knows where this thing's going to end up trying to it luckily turkeys smell really bad when they die so you yeah. kind of get close and start smelling around for it but i think that's where um, something like the bullhead would come in so handy before we jump into that though andrew what you got for us well you know i'm going to testify to uh robin's testing procedures he opened up his toolbox the other day. Uh, it's probably a foot deep. It's full of... So knee-high on him? Yeah, yeah, knee-high. It's full of broadhead <laughs> packages that are only missing one, where you can tell, you know, he took it out, he tested it, and then he tossed it back in. Um, so he spent some time. And you were talking about how hard they are to track. Um, last year, Robin and I hunted in Nebraska, and, you know, he made a bad shot on a turkey. It still died. Um, but we ended up tracking it all the way back to its roost the next day. Wow. So. They're tough animals, man. And yeah, there's such a small vital area and it's not where you think it is. And, and there's so many things. Where do you shoot a turkey? Where do you shoot a turkey? So since we've got turkey season really coming up, the next thing, it's really easy to identify where the turkey's head is because whether you're hunting with a shotgun Hopefully you're not body shooting. If you are, just stop <laughs> listening right now or maybe start <laughs> listening more frequently. Stop doing that. Uh, but you're used to shooting it in the head anyway. So tell us a little bit more about the evolution, just your time with the bullheads. And then I really would love to, at some point in time during this conversation, talk about setup. And I know you all have kits where you offer the arrows and everything. What are people getting wrong? What do they need to know if they are going to? Because I want to get back into it. I had some many before hotshot or knowing anybody associated with the company. And I just, I was not the person who knew about tuning bows and things like I've learned over the many years here. So I um, would love to just hear about that evolution of learning how they're flying, of continuing to tune and tweak and dial that head in. So... When we started doing this back in 2008, 2009, even predating that back in the, you know, 2003 when I ran the first of the guillotines that came out, nobody really thought about the physics behind the flight of this big obnoxious head out there on the front end of an arrow. And, you know, I'm guilty as charged. I'm a mechanical engineer. So I'm. Before we go too far, big obnoxious head. For those who may be not be familiar with the bullhead, how big is this big obnoxious head? Three and three quarter inch diameter. If you draw a circle with those blades, it's three and three quarter inch diameter. That's a 125. The 100, I don't remember. I think it's around two and a half or two and three quarter. I don't remember the exact spec on it. 
but you know, even as a mechanical engineer, I never even thought about it. And then we were struggling. There was some flight issues trying to get struggle. And, and it's like, well, maybe the rod is not capable of flying. And the more we broke it down, uh, we had an engineer on staff, Woody Sanford and Mike and myself, and we started thinking, well, wait a second here. Let's back up. Let's think about arrows. We already know when we shoot a Magnus bullhead because the, the size is so large that we have got to um, get that broadhead out in front of the riser. Now, you also got to go back in time and remember that in the mid-90s, everybody was shooting overdraws with short arrows. So mm-hmm. even when overdraws went away, people were trying to get that deer broadhead up as tight to the riser as they could. And sometimes when you depending on the rest, maybe that broadhead is up into the riser. So we had to go to a longer arrow just out of the gate. You also got to think that sometimes sight rings might be in the way. Uh, trust me, I've hit one. You don't want to ever do that. Um, so Sounds pretty catastrophic. Yeah, yeah. So these were the early days of testing. So anytime you lengthen an arrow, the effective spine decreases. Anytime you go from a 100-grain broadhead, which would arguably be the most popular weight for deer hunters, so most people are using those, and jump to a 125-grain broadhead on the front, the effective spine on the arrow decreases. We've known that for years. You can go back and look at Eastern arrow charts and all that stuff for years, and we always knew that. But when we started doing the, these big head choppings, when us and other companies came along, nobody was applying the basic science that we already knew. So it kind of dawned on us uh, at that time that we need to figure out first tackle the spine of the arrow because we're lengthening it. So we started playing with different brands and everything else. And we kind of settled in and, and I'm sure since then some of the newer manufacturers are making just as good out of arrows, but we settled in in about 2011, I think it was with the victory 300 spine V1 shaft. We found from tip to tail, it gave us the most consistent spine. It gave us, um, you know, everything that we were wanting for. It gave us, it, out of the product, it gave us flight characteristics we were looking for. Well, super uh, straight, too. The yeah. V1 is their 1,000 plus or minus tolerance. Correct, right, right. So, again, you got to go back to, like, 2011, 2012. That's what we were choosing as an option, and we still, that's our option right now. Now, that's not to say with aero technology that some of these great companies have come up with, that you can't take another shaft to do it. But you got to remember when we're trying to sell a product like the Bullhead, especially in a kit where we include these arrows, I'm trying to sell a crescent wrench tool that Logan can use, that Andrew can use, that Robin can use, and that I can do use. And that's four people and it's four different setups. Now let's take the turkey hunting archery base out there. I've got thousands, hundreds of thousands of setups that I got to have something to fly out of. So we came up with something that we feel works very well in 95% of the archers. And then you have outliers and we tackle those with some other issues and different types of arrows. So that's kind of how it evolved. And once we figured out the arrow spine and going to either a three inch or three, five inch fletch on the backside or four, four inch fletch on the backside, we now could help control and steer it. You got to think that you've got some big airplane wings out on the front end of this arrow. And the aerodynamic forces, I can't change the laws of physics as an engineer. So the aerodynamic forces are what they are. So it's putting forces, twisting forces on that shaft. So you got to steer it with fletching and spine and control it, counterbalance all those forces. 
And so the four inch four feather fletch works best. Now a three five inch works equally as well. But the problem when you get into that is if you get somebody who's got a short axle, but I mean, short, short brace height bow, say six inch or less. And then you start getting into a fletching rest Feathers are issue. resting up on the riser. So, so again, you know, trying to come up with this, what's the crescent wrench that applies to 95%. Okay. Let's go with the four fletch four inch. So that's how that all evolved. And we came up with something that works. So then you're like, how do you get the word out? How do you figure this out? Which I think leads into where you want to go with this is just because you provide a hammer doesn't mean that somebody knows to hit a nail and drive it into a board. You have to teach them. So the focus ever since we have done this, came up with this whole kit and this system is to teach, 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 teach. I don't want you, the customer, Logan, to buy a bullhead and arrows, even if you buy the kit with the arrows, to then go home and struggle and leave with a bad taste in your mouth because you couldn't get them to fly. So it's all about teaching. So the next thing we did was we did a video that we called, it's on the YouTube channel for Magnus. It's also on the DVD that's included in every package of heads. And so many guys just take those DVDs and throw them away because they think, oh, this is a bunch of turkey hunts. And there are some on there, but the setup to success takes you from knowing nothing to probably covering about 95% of the issues that you may have. So again, that crescent wrench approach. And so it walks you through the whys and the hows. And some of it, you're like, okay, you got to wade through it. But it's very important to understand what I just talked about in aerospine, in fletching, in you know, how spine changes and the dy- aerodynamic forces. Because once you understand that, then you in your mind go, okay, now I accept what I've got to do because I really want to shoot turkeys in the head. So if you watch that and you do what we say, it will work nine times, not more than nine times out of ten. And it all comes down to once you've tackled the spine issue and everything, it comes down to bow tune. You've got to have a tuned bow. Absolutely. I think regardless of what you're doing, I think that's where everything starts. You, yeah. you know, you can't build a Ferrari. You're never going to win a race if you don't have a tuned car. Mm-hmm. So the same thing with a bow. I think make sure it's tuned correctly. Then you can right. make your tweaks from there as you start to dial yeah. something like this. And in. so, and you know, another thing too, shooting form's got to be good. All these basic principles, because you've got an obnoxious head out on the front that the laws of physics are creating all these forces and it wants to fly off in a different direction. So we're trying to make it fly right. So speed is the speed is the bad guy when it comes to bullheads. The Tell fast, me more. The faster that arrow is flying, the hot, larger the forces are on that on those blades and on the shaft and the harder it is to steer. Now that's not saying that I can't steer one straight at high speed. What I'm saying is it becomes more critical, the tune, your shooting form, all these micro factors become more critical. So if we can slow it down, that's probably one of the biggest things. I'll get a guy and say, he'll call him and go, man, I'm struggling. I'm like, okay, well, what's your setup? Tell me about it. He's like, well, I'm pulling 70 pounds. I got a 29 inch draw. And I got a six-inch bracite bow, and I'm like, well, you're shooting a speed demon bow here at 70 pounds. You don't need 70 pounds to take a turkey's head off. First thing I want you to do is, if you're willing, let's back it down to 60, 62 pounds. Let's take some of that energy away. Um, You know, sometimes, you know, it might be as simple as, you know, somebody decides I really want to do this. I'm just going to buy a second bow and set up this turkey, so I'll get it. 
somebody will say, I'm going to get a seven inch brace height bow. It's a little more forgiving. It's going to be slower. So if we can scrub a little bit of speed, that helps. I had actually an NFL football player called me last spring, getting ready to turkey season. And we were talking about it. And he, he was only, he was only pulling 60 pound limbs, but he had like a 32 inch gorilla length arm draw. And it, again, you got, it's a you big know, power stroke, yeah, even at you, 65 pounds. Right, exactly. You got three more inches of, of draw length than I do. You got 18 inches more draw length than what Robin does. <laughs> <laughs> and But anyway, so it's putting more energy into it. And I said, here's what I want you to do. I said, I want you to back your 60-pound limbs down to about 55 and see what happens. He called me back the next day. He's like, dude, I'm, I'm shooting lights out. So it was a five-pound difference was all he had to make. You got to dial into the tune of the shaft. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I've shot a well, lot of indoor stuff, so getting the, those things yeah, dialed so, in is going to so take some. So when you start talking about tuning the bow, you need to tune the bow to the bullhead arrow. You can't take your whitetail arrow and tune the bow to it, and then throw a heavier, longer bullhead arrow on there with a heavier tip. It's totally it. It doesn't work. One, at least in my experience, it's been a while, admittedly, since I tried the bullheads. It was probably not too long after they first came out. I liked the design more than the guillotines that are out there with the massive, big, fragile blades on them. Uh, I don't know that you could use a whitetail arrow from your bow with that because it's not going to put the, at least mine, I'm I'm always, my arrows are cut to right at the throat of the grip. So you take that... um, that draw length and shorten it back up to right where you take that inch and three quarters off. I mean, even I'm thinking at 32 inch draw, how do you even find an arrow? So I think that's one thing that a lot of people need to be aware about is you're not going to be able to just swap that because of the size of the blade, you're going to be drawing the arrow back past the edge of the riser. And so, and so you say all that. And so then the listener or, or the potential customer goes, well, man, that just sounds like a lot of work. I don't know that it's worth it. And, and I would argue, and I think Robin can back me up on this because he's killed a bunch of them this way. The end results are worth it. So the beautiful benefit is when you, and it makes it sound like it's a lot of work. It really isn't. In most cases, it's pretty easy to tune the things out and get them flying well. We talk a lot about just but how easy some of this stuff that seems it really is. complicated it, it is. It really is. It sounds complicated, but it's not. But the biggest benefit is now we have taken bow hunting turkeys in a recovery situation from a measurement of many, many yards in most cases, hopefully you find it, to now measured in feet. I mean... Most of them are dropped from the point of impact to where they're on their face on the ground is feet, one, two feet, sometimes right where they stand. Now they might then flop a little ways, but you're not tracking a wounded bird. You're not tracking a bird that's holed up under some deadfall log and you're trying to get a second arrow in. Um, And you're not, I think the thing that I love most about them, um, I can't deny that there is Kind of a cool thing to some of these videos. As hunters, we know that death is part of it. But I think the biggest thing for me is you're not throwing away a quarter to half the bird because of all the traumatic damage from that two and a half, three inch cut broadhead that was slamming through thighs and potentially getting into the breast. I mean, that's that's why I shoot them. They're amazing birds, but I love the taste of turkey too. If I wasn't eating them, I I wouldn't, if I wasn't eating them, wow, that was really (laughs) educated sounding right there. My hillbilly roots are showing up. But if I wasn't eating them, I probably wouldn't spend the time that yeah. I do going out and hunting so, them. So um, a buddy of mine several years ago, we were hunting the same blind together, and he was shooting mechanicals, and I was shooting bullheads, and we had Tom's come in. He shoots this one Tom. We were in Illinois, 
He shoots it right off the roost in the morning, runs off. We lose track of it in Illinois at the time. I don't remember. You can hunt till noon or one, something like that. So we're like, okay, let's just lay, let it lay. We're going to keep hunting out the, the morning. And so we get wrap up and we go try and find this bird. And luckily we found it two or 300 yards away, buried underneath a, a log and still alive. So he puts another arrow into it. We're like, yeah, you know, the high five and hey, this is great. Congratulations. We take it back to the barn. We do the photos. We start skinning it out and he had hit it low down in the guts. Okay. And so we start skinning it out and we had to throw out about two thirds of one of the breasts because the meat was already turning green. This poor bird was laying there alive and he was rotting while he was oh, alive. Man. And so A, we had to throw out meat, which is not a lot of meat on turkey. And B, last time I checked us, uh, us as hunters, one of the goals was a quick and ethical clean kill. And that was not, and I felt terrible for that bird. And I know it's just a turkey, but I felt bad for that bird. That bird should not have to suffer that long. You know, so, you know, that, that quick, clean kill of a bullet or the quick, clean miss. And I can tell you what, I've missed my fair share of them. Rob and I were hunting in Texas and I had a bad day where I just, it was like swing, miss, swing, miss, like what's going on. And as bad as missing stings and, you know, you're like, dang it, you know, you get mad at yourself. I would rather go back to uh, the cabin that night and live with missing than the fact that I hit a bird and I can't find it. And that sucks. Or, and I, that applies to deer or any other game. I don't want to lose an animal. So that to me is where the biggest benefits of a bullhead are, you know. And, and also, you, you, know, you used to talk about the ease. People tell me, well, I couldn't hit. There's no way I can make that shot. It's too hard. Dude, I'm telling you, it's the easiest shot in all of bow hunting. You know, Robin here has got a red Coke can sitting here in front of him, uh, a 12-ounce uh, Coke can. Sponsor us, Coke. There you go. There Drinking you go. your products. So, so here's what here's what I tell people as I'm like, you know, if Robin says, Derek, I just can't, that's too hard a shot. I'm like, well, Robin, let's take that Coke can of yours. Let's go out here 20 yards and we're going to set it on the ground. And I'm going to pull out a $100 bill and I'm going to lay it on the table. And I'm going to bet you you're going to miss that Coke can. This is just with your regular product or field tips. He's taking that bet every day of the week and 99 to 100 times out of 100, he's taking my $100 bill from me. He's winning the bet. That's how simple shooting a turkey in the head with a bullhead is because it's this red Coke can that's sitting there. And actually, it's twice as long as the Coke can is tall. The head's as big as a grown man's fist. That target area is so big and it's so clearly defined. When we start, first start going bow hunting, the first thing we're taught is on a deer or anything is pick a spot to aim at. The spot is so clearly defined. There's nothing in Mother Nature that has those colors that looks like that. Or ain't. So the spot's there. The target area itself is bigger because when you look at the vitals inside a turkey, they're like an egg-shaped softball. So it's bigger to begin with, and you get a margin of error with those bullhead blades. And as your body's shooting birds and he's coming in, the point of aim is always changing depending on which way he's facing. Feathers up, feathers down. I'm getting buck fever. I'm playing mind games with myself. That to me is the hardest shot in bow hunting. That one is shooting him in the head. Unless the only time he's not available is if he's completely full strut facing away from you. And then it's just waiting for him to turn to the right spot. So it's actually is a really easy shot. And again, if you miss, it sucks to miss. But man, I'd rather live with that than a wounded bird. So Robin or Derek, you're, where are 
where are people going wrong with this? Because you mentioned something that comes to my mind. I don't know if it comes to everybody's mind, a 20-yard shot. I really can't fathom attempting a 20-yard shot with a bull. I mean, is that is that realistic? So what are, from the two of you who have used these things so many times, what are people doing wrong outside of the tuning um, what would be ideal? So if you had to give the best advice for obviously as close as possible is certainly better. You, you'd definitely run into issues where now five yards is your 60 yard pin versus having a five yard pin or something like that. But what are people doing wrong and what advice can we give them today to maybe help correct a little bit of that? Well, <clears throat> from my standpoint, I think getting them in close means five, six steps from the blind. And so my decoys really are like I do five steps, one, two, three, four, five, boom. That's how far my decoys are from my blind. Now I'm sure we're going to have a whole lot of turkey episodes coming up when spring season comes along. So I don't want to get like way detailed in turkey hunting, but. No, just specifically around uh, using a bullhead. What are some mistakes maybe that either of you have made that we could maybe help someone from making? It's getting it for me. The answer is getting them in close and uh avoiding any issues with yardage uh mistakes because i think derek will say the same thing yes it's possible to kill them at 20 yards at the bullhead it's possible to have them flying just right at 20 yards but the difference between 20 yards and five yards it may not even be the same pin anymore it's a whole new ball game you know because it's not your white tail setup just like you just went through everything about Shooting a bullhead effectively goes against the typical bow hunter's thought of let me try to eliminate yardage errors in my game. And so, I, for me, using a good set of decoys that's realistic that will bring and hold the birds close is the key to chopping heads off. Yeah, I I totally agree, and and I agree with with Robin. We could we could do an hour and a half episode just on that topic right there. And it is, it's, it's getting him in close and how you do that is for another, is for another podcast. But I will say that I have killed him at 25 yards. I don't like to, but I have, um, really sometimes it's just accepting the fact that today wasn't the day period. He didn't come into 10, eight yards, five yards, 12 yards, whatever it is that you feel today's not the day I'll get him tomorrow. You know, if he hangs up at 20 and you don't feel comfortable at 20, be patient. And And that's a hard pill to swallow for guys that decide this year I'm going to try with my bow. So they've been shooting him with shotguns. And, you know, that means you call him in, one sticks his head up at 40 yards or less, boom, he's down, right? Now you got a bird there that's 25 yards, and that's like screaming at most people. He's way too close, and but he's not. That In this game needs to be closer the one i the one i killed at 25 yards was a couple years ago and was in kansas and he was full strut standing like a statue if he wasn't standing there like a statue there's no way i'd ever taken the shot i felt pretty comfortable with it and so i took it and man i hit him square and dropped him you know right there in a spot but um you know again it's knowing knowing how they're going to fly out of your setup for me one pin is good from from five yards to 15, 16 yards. I've got another pin set at 20. I got another pin at 25, just in case I decide in that case, that's what I want to do. 
look, I can I can go out in my driveway. We can go out there and set a water bottle up at 50 yards. I can hit it with a bullhead. Okay, but I'm never doing that when I'm hunting. I'm never doing that at 30 yards when I'm hunting. It's got to be a really special case for me to do that 20 or 25. I mean, he has got to be standing there like a statue for me to take that shot because I don't want to screw it up. I, I mean, I could shoot and miss and scare him off, and maybe five minutes later he might have come charging in. I just screwed the whole thing up. So I would rather I would rather go home with my tail tucked between my legs like, well, he won the battle today then take those long shots, you know? So again, it's what, it's what Robin said, put them in close, put them at 10 yards or closer. Like Robin, I set my decoys at five to seven yards, depending on the situation and pull them in there tight. So it sounds like just understanding limitations, whether it's limitations of equipment, you're not taking the same shot with a bow that you're taking with a rifle or a shotgun. So same thing here, maybe using this type of head, you are challenging yourself in a, a different way and you have to understand where that challenge is since these are different they're not your typical you, they, you don't have a practice head that has blades that are locked in for people that are used to shooting the the big expandables and i know there are videos out there about it but how does one practice how would you recommend somebody if they're getting ready um, whether it's a dealer here who's placing an order or somebody goes to that dealer and picks up a set before these seasons start kicking off in march or whenever they get going how does one practice to start to get proficient with this head? The best way and cheapest way is a free hanging pillow. So go down to your dollar store, your dollar general, whatever, buy the cheapest poly filled pillow that you can buy five bucks, maybe 10 bucks, whatever it is, throw it in a dirt cheap pillowcase. Heck, I've even started using uh feed sacks. My daughter's rates four inch animals. So I'll use a feed sack from a goat or a dog food bag or whatever and hang it and have it free hanging. You need to clip it at the top so that if you hit it, it would swing. And what happens is that pillow absorbs all the energy of the impact. It gives you your impact point. The The arrow either falls on the ground or gets stuck in the pillow and you can dig it out. Um, that's the best way to do it. And you're going to damage the head to the least. Now, that being said, eventually you're going to start bending blades backwards because there's a lot of force on them. You might even break a blade, but that's where that magic lifetime, no questions asked warranty from Magnus comes in. So even something like this, where we know it's pretty likely we're going to use a lot of these blades, that's still under that lifetime warranty. Dude, we could walk outside right now, take a bow, knock an arrow, and shoot it into a concrete block wall while the owner of Magnus is watching you, and he'll warranty the head. Man, I, I don't know how you don't support a company that's willing to stand behind their product that much to where it's not most companies' sales strategies to say, look, I don't, you could pretty much buy one of these and we'll just continue to make yeah. sure that they're short, short right of lo- Short of losing it, yeah. So, you know, and we, we talk about that quite a bit on the video is the practice because that is key. I also think it's key to when you're practicing after each shot and you go out to take another shot is just snug they don't get loose but just hit every screw that holds the blades on with a quick torque and that kind of helps in the aluminum ferrule it kind of helps eliminate some damage there but again you're going to break blades and bend blades but again we stand behind them you know that's so awesome i appreciate you sharing the information around that i know there's some questions floating around the table we mentioned your projects that you've got going on um, and I mean, really impactful to me. You said something to me yesterday that 
um, really almost kind of as I walked away, just I felt it inside. I mean, I could feel the the impact to it. So you do a lot of video work. But before we dive into that, um, I know we always we do a thing called parting shots at the end where anything that you haven't discussed yet or whether it's related to the topic of most of our conversation or not. But um, any any parting shots around Magnus, the Bullheads, any Andrew, Robin, anything else that you, you and Derek, you want to talk about before? Because I'd love to have some time uh, just to dive into a little bit about what you've got going on with the video yeah. work and um, some of the questions about the equipment that you use. Okay. Yeah. yeah let, let me jump in and throw one in there because this, this is good and relevant. And um, We're here at the ATA show and kind of like one of our other recent episodes. We don't necessarily have listener questions readily available for people like you because they don't know we're sitting down with you, right? Mm -hmm. But one thing that is asked to me a lot relative to Magnus Broadheads is why shoot the serrated blades and what's the difference between a straight blade and serrated blade? So I'll use that as a typical listener question and have you give me yeah. your answer on it. Yeah, so... um when it comes to the blades themselves, okay, there's there's multiple answers to this. Is um, one from a from a business standpoint, you have to when it comes to a broadhead, you have to offer different offerings because not everybody likes the same flavor of ice cream. So some guys like serrated, some don't. So personally, I love the serrated heads, and we're going to talk about the benefits in a second. But if you are a shooter that just says, look, I don't believe in serrations. I want the straight edge. So there it is. And it flat performs. I mean, nothing will outpenetrate a smooth, like you say, in our Stinger lineup, because of the uh, the mechanical advantage with that long blade angle, nothing's going to outpenetrate that, period, pound for pound, on a theoretical engineering level. When you start looking at the serrations, though, we use what's called a chisel serration. When you pick up a steak knife or a knife that you'd pick up from, you know, whatever store, they typically use what's called a scallop serration. It's a rounded serration where the points of each serration come together. So you got a point and then you got a curved scallop. Ours are a chisel and you'll notice that they come out straight off the blade and then there's a straight chunk of blade that is traditional and then you get into the next serration and so on. And what happens, this happens in both the Buzzcut and the Black Hornet Serrazor, Razor, but it is magnified on the Serrazor, Razor, is as a broadhead goes through a piece of hide, hide is under tension, okay? The, that animal skin is under tension. So the broadhead is slicing through it, and it's pushing, let's say on the entrance wound, it's pushing that hide inward and putting stress on the hide, and it's, it's stretching the hide. So it gets to the first serration, which is an indentation, and the hide naturally, this all happens in microseconds. The hide wants to snap back into that serration, and then the next one catches it. The next blade edge catches it and catches it. And so what you end up with is almost like a series of multiple knife cuts, like this nick, 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 nick. And next thing you know, you take a one and an eighth or one and a quarter inch blade, and you open that wound channel up to something much larger. So that, to me, is the benefit of the serrations. The chisel serrations also tend to not plug with hair and fat like and send you like a scalloped serration would as well. So 
quite frankly, the benefit is bigger wound channels. Bigger wound channels translates most of the time to more blood loss. More blood loss on the ground translates to quite often easier tracking and shorter tracking job. So, but why do we offer them both? Again, some people just have in their mind that that's what they want in a blade. They want a straight blade, and that's awesome. Those those heads have killed every animal on this planet, um, as far as game animals go, from dangerous game down to small game. And that's great. So we have that offering. We also have the serration offering. We have, you know, different blade profiles depending on what somebody likes and expects out of their blade. We got vented, non-vented, we, you know, two blade, four blade. Again, some of it comes back to what flavor of ice cream do you like? It's all ice cream, but do you like vanilla? Do you like chocolate? Whatever. Yeah, there's no doubt that some people just don't know anything about the serrated blades, but it just looks badass and they want them. Oh, yeah. And that's fine. Well, you know, that's a huge seller in the Black Hornet, to be honest with you. Yeah. And the Serrazor, a lot of this younger crowd looks at that and goes, man, that is a bad looking head. I want that. See, but I was on the flip side. I had to be convinced because when I looked, I thought, man, this is places for fat, for hair, for all sorts of things to just gunk up and get into. And I talked with you and Mike last year at the ATA show for yeah. quite a while. I took a shot that I shouldn't have for the head that I was using the year before, and the broadhead wasn't designed for that type of shot, and I needed something. I wanted better penetration, shooting a little bit lower poundage. So talking with you all, I was all about, I'm going buzz cut, I'm going to do the two-blade, straight blade, and then after talking with you all, I was like, oh, just now it makes sense to have that. So there's kind of both sides. I think there might be people that shy away from it thinking that, Oh, that's going to stop my penetration. That's going to slow it down. I'm not going to have that same level, but yeah. at least the the deer that I shot this year would have I would have never taken that shot with a mechanical again. Had no issues. I was 100% confident knowing that that angle, the distance, everything, the serrations. I had shot them enough practicing with them, and I saw kind of what the damage would do to the foam that I was shooting at and the targets. So. Yeah, I it, think if it's you're a misconception that, so. in people's head that serrations means grab a hold and tear. And that's not what's happening, like Derek just described. And so when you get rid of that misconception of serrations mean grab and tear and get back to what they're really doing, which is different levels of slicing. You're not sawing. It makes sense. It's yeah. not a saw not a type saw. serration. Right. You right. don't have exactly. those teeth. Right. right. This is not you cutting up a tough steak at home you know, for your dinner that you've overcooked. This is a, this is a, a different way to cut and it's very precise and it ends up with larger, definitely a larger entrance and exit, but, and it's hard to always evaluate what's the cut in the actual, you know, vital tissue and stuff like that, but it's definitely is bigger and more hemorrhaging and more blood on the ground. And in the end result is hopefully a shorter, quicker track job. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think of it, I think the way maybe you had even described it too, Going through fat, if you try to yeah. push just a normal flat steak knife through any sort of fat, I mean, it just wants to grab onto yeah. those sides and having those serrations opens it up a little bit and even can improve the penetration going through things like that because you're getting right. some of that airspace. It's almost like a bloodline on a knife or something. Right. So one of the things I always say is, you know, um, we can take any broadhead out there and there's a lot of great companies that make great broadheads. Any broadhead will do its job. And kill an animal. Andrew Metz, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Ta-da. <laughs> Andrew in the house. So anyways, any broadhead will kill an animal if you do your job and put the arrow where it's supposed to go. And that's wonderful. But here's the deal. 
I want to, uh, I can go out and, and kill 10 deer and only one of them goes down perfectly the way my mind envisioned it, the perfect shot, you know, whatever. I want a broadhead that does the job when I either A, don't do my job right or I only do my job marginally and I put a marginal shot or maybe that, maybe the last second that deer steps or it turns slightly and like, oh crap, and I can't take that arrow back. So I need a broadhead that does that. The wicked bleeders, the back sharpening on the blades, you bury one in an offside shoulder, it grinds around in there and you get more hemorrhaging. You know, we discussed in the podcast with my girls and you were talking about Sydney about her buck. And I guarantee you that we would have never recovered that buck if that design wasn't in there chopping and, you know, chopping up veins and arteries and tissue when he's running away. And she knew it. She, the moment she shot it, she's like, that animal's not going to die. I made a bad shot. She's 18 years old. She doesn't watch hunting TV. She has no idea that you're supposed to blame a broadhead as social media has now <laughs> taught us. It's always a broadhead's fault. Here's an 18-year-old girl, young lady, who has no clue that by hunting standards, you're supposed to blame that. And she's like, I messed up. And she got dang lucky and knew she did that we found it. But the that was a case where a good product bailed her backside out in a bad situation. So... Awesome, Andrew. What do you got before we move on? Because I know you actually had some questions as well about on the filming side and the video side of things, photography. Anything about Magnus before we talk about that? You know, I don't really have a question. I just want to testify. They work. Uh, I killed my first hog with one. I'm still working on killing a deer. I wish I knew of a guy that could take me hog hunting. If you yeah. got a contact, let me know. <laughs> it would be nice, yeah. wouldn't it? It's one it? of those things on my bucket list. Who took you hog hunting, Andrew? Oh, uh, just this absolute jerk. Uh, (laughs) You nailed that one some days. Robin, you know. All right, so then we'll actually kick it off with you because I know one of the things, um, we've talked about it a little bit, Derek, you are the owner. How would you describe your title within the production company that you have with New Days Outdoors? Tell us just a little bit about that, and then, Andrew, I want you to jump in and Uh, geek out over some of this camera stuff for a while my title with new day outdoors is founder owner video guy camera guy editor janitor trash man (laughs) you know it's basically for the most part look it's been a one-man show outside of my girls and occasional friends helping out and you know as we talked about back in my daughter's podcast for those who haven't uh, heard it it all started just wanting to be a dad going out and filming your daughters you know hunting i'm an engineer i'm a nerd admittedly so i tend to go overboard with everything i do and um you know so it just one of these deals and i got into it and i started liking doing it and it just evolved into what it is you know and it's still to this day i can't tell you what it is um but i can tell you that it seems to be growing this last year you know it seems like what i do um is seeing more views and people and i come here to ata and uh people well-known people in the industry are pulling me aside and going, dude, I'm watching what you're doing and I'm loving it, loving what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. So it's just kind of morphed into something again. You know, this is not my full-time job. It's a hobby job. Uh, my, my wife used to joke it was a tax write-off job, you know, the whole nine <laughs> yards. So, but you know, in that, in all seriousness, it's something I do take very seriously because I want to produce whatever I produce. I want it to be the highest quality that I know how to do. And I'm learning every day, just like everybody else. It's introduced me to so many great people. 
I mean, that's really is the way even Robin and I met. We met kind of online through forums with mutual interests and he's doing aim low and he's video and then I am and it strikes up conversations, which ultimately leads me meeting you guys and, and other many wonderful people and other guys trying to do the same type of thing. And it's, it's been something that's, again, it, there's no been no defined paths. I can't even tell you what it really is, um, what my plans are, what, you know, how it got here, but it's just been a hell of a fun ride to be on. It's so, definitely not a get rich quick scheme. That oh, is no, for it's sure. not even about that. It's not even about that. No. Awesome. Uh, so, Andrew, I know we've got just probably 15 or 20 more minutes before our next yep. guest anyway, and you had some questions. So like I said, I could dive in. I could talk about this stuff. I just like being interested in this type of stuff, uh, but wanted to give you a chance to kind of nerd out together the way we've been doing <laughs> over some of this broadhead stuff so far. Uh, well, first, I want to start with, uh, is it S and S and 60? Yes. S, a- S, and then the and sign, S. And then the letter N, 60. So S and S and 60. And it stands for Saturday and Sunday in 60 seconds. All right. That's how I came up with that. See, I was I was thinking many other things with S and no. S. No. Oh, and so, he, 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 no, yeah. And I actually <laughs> worried about that. I'll be honest with you. Um, so, like, S and M, S and what are you doing here? So, um it all evolved in a conversation that I had a year ago at ATA with somebody else who was, they got a small YouTube channel and they're just going gangbuster. I'm like, dude, I've been on YouTube like 10 years and I cannot figure this out. Like, I don't understand because I think I'm cranking out good stuff. And he's like, you need to crank out, you need to work harder. You need to crank out more. And he's like, and I'm like, I can't steal. The problem is you can't steal somebody's time. You know, um, used to be, we, I could steal 30 minutes of your time with a TV show. Then it's like 15 minutes. And I went under this rule of thumb. Like I could steal 10 minutes from somebody. You can't anymore. I mean, right, right now you watch, you look at YouTube videos and there's a lot of times where I'll watch them be like two minutes in, like, yep, I'm done. I'm moving on. So I was like, man, there's gotta be a way I can do a 60 second long video and make it something that is regular. Cause it's key. So I decided, and I think I'm at 29 weeks in a row now, and I'm going to keep rolling for as long as I can keep rolling it every weekend, Saturday, Sunday. What's my life? And they're short clips. Clips are one second or less long, and it's just bang, 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 bang. Some weekends are super exciting. You know, if it's hunting season, you kill the deer, that that really makes it an interesting video. Some weekends are just lame life. You know, I mean, it is what it is. But the cool part is A, is I'm posting regularly and it gets a lot of views and I've had a ton of great feedback. But even my wife, she's like, this is fun. She goes, I wish you, because my girls are in it, you know, and this and that. She's like, I wish you've been doing this all 20 years since my oldest has been around. She's like, this is a great way to remember what you've done on weekends. So it's really, and it's really improved my editing skills and a lot of that because you're forced to be at that machine and shooting and getting creative and the creative, it's affected now my hunting videos. I just did some stuff for some private clients of mine here before ATA that they wanted to present stuff. And I took some of the basic principles that I've learned through doing that and applied it. They loved it. The companies they were wanted it for loved it. I loved it because there was a check written to me, you know, I mean, I'm like, <laughs> that always yeah, helps. Yeah. You're paying me like real money. This is great. So, um, and I've got some ideas for some hunting videos of my own this circle around that same type of formatting and comment, you know, like why should there, why should I have to show a 15 minute turkey hunting video when I can get that done in two and a half minutes? 
Now, I'll still do the 15-minute one if somebody wants to see the, all the details and what it went into it. But for the guy who's got two to three minutes, let's do a quick bang, bang, bang edit. But go. it seems like it would make you focus on what's the most valuable. And I think we could all do that. Even sometimes in the podcast, I know there have been times that I've maybe had some that I made go longer than they needed to. I had some vision in my mind, but it seems like that really forces you to say, what do I want to show here? Because I only have this time. So how do I determine And it forces you to be creative. You know, it forces you. It's so easy to sit here with all this camera equipment and go, man, I got all this stuff. It's not worth anything if you don't use it. You know, I mean, I've got several people I know and they complain about this and that. And I'm like, dude, go shoot photos. Go shoot video. Go do it. That's why I started doing. I committed and I'm at day like 11 now. And this this is going to be a daunting task is a quality photograph once a day. And most of the time it's going to be with my good equipment. Sometimes it might be a cell phone. But what it's doing is it's forcing me to be creative. And over the course of the year look back and go, man, this is where I started and this is how I finished. The editing skills got better. The the actual taking of the photo, composition, getting the settings, it, it forces you to get better. And that's the only way. If not, that camera just sits there until it's time to go turkey hunt and I don't use it and I never get better. Yeah, so, I think too, again, on that, as I get a little deep here maybe, is what I like about it is it seems like that also forces you to realize what are some of the cool things you're seeing or doing on a daily basis. You're now keeping your eyes open for something different instead of just trying to get through till you can get back to bed and go to sleep again. Now you're actually looking for what's the awesome thing that I can share here or how can I yeah. take the the mundane and show you something that's really cool about just my ordinary everyday life. Yeah, you look at the world in a, in a totally different perspective because now when you walk in a room, you're like, okay, what here could be really cool? How can I take this boring room and make it cool? Well, you put me in it. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we do a group selfie like we did before yeah, we started absolutely. here. Like, that's it. So so just speaking of a different perspective, in your 60-second videos, I've seen a lot of aerial footage. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's nerd out on some drones. Okay, let's nerd out on drones. Cool, man. What are you using? So I have two drones at my disposal. I have an Autel Evo. Uh, which is a really nice drone. I really like it a lot. They're coming out actually at CES right now uh, this week, and I haven't had a chance to get online and look with the new Evo 2, which I'm kind of excited to see that as well. But the Evo is awesome. shoots 4K, 60 frame per second video, so you can butter smooth that down and say a 24 or uh, 30 frame per second timeline and get just some awesome, you know, slow-mo footage. I think the thing that people struggle with drones is people put too much and too long of drone clips in videos, to be quite frank. And a little bit of drone footage goes a long way. It's like three seconds. You think seconds. they're trying to get their money's worth out must of the drone be. that they paid for? Yeah, or? it must be. These people, there's it, the drone nerds freak out because they want like two-hour flight times. I'm like, you only need three seconds of footage. Like, I don't know <laughs> what your problem here is. So I have that. I really like that drone. I also, through my engineering job, my real job in real life, um, I have a DJI, the Mavic 2 Enterprise, which has the infrared camera system and the whole nine yards right. as well. And I'm allowed to use it on personal projects if I want to. And sometimes I do because they want the flight time, you know, keep you, keep you flying. Because I don't always use it that often for work. Um, but uh, so I have my commercial license, um, Part 107. I'm a registered with FAA. I actually have a night flight waiver, so I can fly legally at night where most people can't. 
Um, so yeah, so I love those two drones. I personally like the Evo better than the DJI, but that's more because I don't like Apple products and I'm an <laughs> Android guy. I just like bucking the system and DJI is the Apple of the drone world. So right. but they make great products. They really do. It's a fun machine to fly and it's a lot of fun. And arguably it's another one that's just like a camera. It'll set. I'm guilty too long, too many times of it setting and not getting used. And you've got to force yourself to be creative and use that stuff. And it helps you in your flight skills when it's a drone. It helps you in your photography or video skills. Because it's not just simply put it up and take a picture or hit the record button. There's different compositions that you need to look for. And those are things that even myself, I try to get better at. I don't think I profess to be great at it. But the more you use it, the better you get and what that image is and what you can do with it. So I love them, man. They're fun. I have some experience with the Maverick Pro. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's great. But, you know, maybe expand on your challenge. Do a uh, drone shot once a week. Yeah, I'm going to. I I plan to, actually. And it's one of those things that once you get past ATA and some things, you can work that in. And I definitely think from the photography side that, yeah, once a week, every couple of weeks, some type of aerial, you know, photo. And even that is... People, a lot of times with the drones, think, oh, man, it's going to be so cool. I can fly up three, 400 feet, which 400 is the legal limit anyway, but, and take this photo. At that point, you're just a Google Earth image. Some of the best drone footages are shots that are taken 50 foot off the ground, relatively low, or even sometimes 20 foot off the ground. You know, it gives you different, just a different vantage point than the guy standing six foot tall with a camera. If you go up to 15, 20 feet and take a picture of the drone, it's a whole different perspective on the world. And uh, this year, you know, if we go down to Texas and I'm, I'm going to take it down there, we're going to yeah. cool, get some cool shots, you know, from the Turkey, you know, we'll do the typical fly over the ranch type of stuff. But, you know, even that is like, you know, if we got time, one of the things, you know, say Rob and I are hunting together and we're like, Hey, we just killed a bird. You know what? We're going to probably just wrap this up till this afternoon. Well, while we're doing some hero picks and some B roll footage, let's get the drone up. And while, and while we're shooting some, uh, B-roll, like just have it kind of quick little pan. And maybe it's just a two second little thing, but it just adds a dynamic to the feel of the footage and what we're doing. I mean, no different really than I, yeah. I would call your little camera here, like a yeah. second angle camera. Yeah. It, you're just getting that other view that you oh, put yeah. you normally. Know, I'm, I'm big on uh, taking like GoPros and stuff, obviously and put them with the turkey decoys. But to watch that footage for any real length of time is horrible. But if you cut in a three or four second clip of it, it adds a whole new dynamic to that, that hunt where you still have the quality main camera footage, whether it's a, a video camera, DSL, mirrorless, whatever, it doesn't matter. But if you can cut in and out, it just adds a dynamic to right. the video. But if you cut, if you camp out on a GoPro footage for it, it's is horrible. I mean, it's just, it, it's boring footage. It looks terrible, but if you cut it in and clip it in, it's just, it turns, it turns a, a, a typical project into something better. Anything um, used correctly can yeah. be used as a I'm benefit. Even, I'm even talking about, uh, before turkey season gets here, jumping into a 360 camera and having that as, again, another tool in the toolbox to put, provide a unique perspective, you know, so... I know we're getting pretty close to our time, and we've already had you off the floor for an hour. And for those of you who have not been to the ATA or worked it, that's almost unheard of to be able to step away for that length of time. Um, So I want to just 
quickly go around the table. We're definitely going to have to do another episode where we just geek oh, out man, over yeah. video and focus on that kind of stuff. Because there's so many questions that I have right now, but I just know we don't have the time in this episode to get there. Um, so, Andrew, we're going to start with you on this episode. What's your parting shot for today? You know, I knew this was coming. I'm still not prepared. Um, okay, moving on then. Just move on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just move on. Well, you don't have to have something to say every single time. So, uh, Robin, my parting Hardy. shot is, uh, you know, we kind of started this off, and I'm going to circle back around and say, you know, being involved in the outdoors and meeting people like Derek, and I really mean this, and this goes, you know, to you, Logan, and not mentioning Andrew, that's because, you know, he's just Andrew, and Thanks. that's a whole different <laughs> thing. Um, but no, seriously, it, it is the reason that I come to ATA, like, we don't have a booth here at ATA, but I'm at ATA to keep fostering relationships and friendships just like we have, and, you know, we've mentioned and this is supposed to be a parting shot, so I'm already getting too long. But we mentioned, like, we're going to go hunting the spring together. And, you know, a handful of years ago, we didn't even know each other. And that's exactly why my involvement in the outdoors keeps at the level that it's at. Thank God I didn't listen to my parents when they told me not to talk to strangers online. I wouldn't have <laughs> so many of the industry friends and family that I've got. Um you know, hang on. I do have a parting shot. All right. Coming back um, around. I'm hoping Greg listens to this. We are going to the Brazilian Steakhouse tonight. Derek's going to be there. It's going to be great. <laughs> yes, it is. All right, I'm Greg, a, I'm Greg, see Greg if I can Taylor, get, you're unnoticed. I'm going to get us the VIP table again like we did last year, which was absolutely hilarious. It was so. awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to have him on one of the episodes as well. Um, Derek, how about you? Any final shots? Anything that you want to make sure that while you've got an opportunity to speak that you share with our, uh, I always joke and say our tens of listeners, but uh, anything at all that's on your mind that you just want to make sure we cover before we go? Well, you know, it's echoing what Robin says is, you know, everybody thinks you're doing this to, to make a ton of money or be famous or you do this and that. And this is all about relationships and friendships, you know, and meeting wonderful people, great people that, that have a common interest in what you do and um, broadening, you know, your, your sense of, of, um, community and purpose and, and just understanding of, of people who might live in a different part of the country and the friendships that I've made in this whole process of whatever this journey has been and continues to be, those friendships are absolutely priceless to me. And, you know, I'm not going to align myself with a company because of money or whatever. I'm, my alignment with Magnus is a thousand percent based on a relationship with one of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life, and that's Mike Somm, and his dedication to making a quality product and not making gimmicks. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just been fun. It's been a hell of a great ride. I've enjoyed getting to know all of you guys, uh, you know, over the years. And, and you know, I am I feel so blessed. Um, yesterday, to me, was a, a somewhat of an overwhelming day because so many people come up and say, watching what you're doing. Or, hey, guess what? We're going to come over. We're going to start shooting these broadheads because of what you're doing and what Mike's doing and everything. And it's like, holy cow, I can't even believe that. You know, it's it's absolutely amazing. So, you know, just 2020, keep working harder, keep cranking out more content, keep cranking out better or quality broadheads and, and go and kill stuff and have fun and be safe. That's my goals. 
Awesome. Well, I don't know that I could put it any better. I think a lot of it ties into, I mentioned at the beginning, so my parting shot would be, I just want to say thank you. I know I stopped by the booth yesterday and we were talking and I get nervous before every single one of these podcasts still. And I have been a professional radio DJ in my life. I'm a professional trainer. I get up in front of large groups and there's something about what we do with this and putting ourselves out there. And you had mentioned, you know, just create the content, just share. And Robin and I have even shared a lot that it's not that we're doing this because we feel like we have something that everyone else needs to hear. We just know that there are people who might be interested and we want to put it out there for those. So thank you so much for just the reminder to just bear down, to do the work, to not be afraid to create and put it out there to be judged by the world and know that there are people who are going to be interested for many different reasons and not because you are holding yourself out as a professional or anything like that, but just because you're, you're being real and you're, you're talking about the things that you're passionate about. So thank you for sharing that. That was a, a big deal to me yesterday, right before I went into a social media summit with some amazing people from across the industry talking about what we're sharing and the content that we're creating and the responsibility that we have. So I just wanted to uh, wrap this up by saying thank you for not only being a great friend and one of those additional industry contacts that I've been so lucky to meet myself, but thank you for always, you know, just being positive and being encouraging. And it's not just to me. I see you do it with a lot of other folks. And I mentioned it with your kids. It, damn, you're a really good guy, but you are a really good guy. So um, go check out Magnus Broadheads. Check out the Bullhead. Watch the videos that Derek has put so much time and passion into helping create for you. Um, what's the website if somebody wanted to go check it out to find a dealer or get more information? MagnusBroadheads.com. We also have the Magnus Broadheads YouTube channel. We got, you know, Magnus Broadheads on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You know, we haven't made the branch into TikTok yet. We're not quite, you know, that advanced. That'll but, be tomorrow, right? Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Uh, so anything Magnus, you know, and obviously my stuff, is, you know, is New Day Outdoors. Please, you know, go to uh, uh, YouTube and subscribe to the Magnus YouTube channel and the New Day Outdoors uh, channel because there's a lot of good hunting content. I think there's a lot of creative good. I believe it's good content on there. Some of it might suck, but I, I really think uh, uh, people enjoy it. And I really appreciate the subscriptions and support and everything. And, and it's... Uh, you know, it's just been a hell of a good run and a lot of fun. So go to those sources and we're here to help you out. Definitely. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys. We'll uh, get together again soon.